Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from an introductory course on how to interpret the Bible that I presented in 2012. If you'd like the lecture notes to follow along with this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com. Click on the link on the left side of the page titled Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. And then find the class, Biblical Interpretation. That'll take you to the page with all the audio recordings as well as a, a substantial set of notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study on how to interpret the Bible. So we're going to open with a word of grace and get ourselves rolling here. So Lord, um, bring us back tonight um, uh, from, the, from the life and, and even the long weekend and the extra day off, which many of us enjoy. We thank you for that. Um, but now help us again to focus. Help us again to resume. Help us again to be um, those who work diligently uh, to study and know and understand the Word of God. Uh, not that we might know and understand the Word of God, but that we might first be transformed by it personally, and secondly, that we might be prepared to make disciples of everyone else, um, and disciples of others. So we pray, Lord, that your blessings to be upon us. Be with us now tonight. Help us to ask the questions that we want and need to ask, and help us to answer those questions with clarity um, and accuracy in accordance with the power of your Spirit. We praise you now for all things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, parables, epistles... And apocalypses are on the docket for tonight. The plan will be to look at those three, and then next week, if we get through all that, uh, I'll begin the beginning of class with our, our wrapping up Luke 15, 16, and 17, which we've taken a few weeks off, looking at those parables and understanding the context, uh, and kind of saying, okay, what does this all mean in terms of everything we've studied in class, kind of bringing it all to a head. And then I also want to spend a lot of time next week being real practical. Here are some books. Here are some resources. Here's some things. Here's some things that I do when I'm studying. Um, I'll show you a little trick that will kind of the, the first time through, like, oh, I don't get it. Uh, but then maybe the second time through, oh, it's just a real practical, I guess you can say trick, that to use when looking at a passage, uh, how to break it down and things like that. And all of a sudden you begin to see more and more and more and more and more and more. Um, it's a simplistic thing that I would encourage you all to try. All right. So tonight we're going to start with parables. Points A and B, or A, A, A and then 1 and 2. Parables are best understood in light of two features. Number one, the cultural setting of first century Palestine uh, and the particular concerns of Jesus. I guess the two features are under point number one. Uh, and the particular concerns of Jesus. Right, so Luke 15, we looked at this a number of weeks already, that the three parables of Luke 15, Parable of the ten, uh, uh, the hundred lost sheep, the ten lost coins, and the two lost, or the one lost son. And the answer is verses one and two. The Pharisees were asking, "Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners?" Verse three. So he told them this parable. The parables then serve to answer the question, "Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners?" And the answer is, "I had to. They were lost, and now they are found." Right. The other element of them is that you have to understand them in light of the first century cultural context. And if you don't do that, they are lost on us. And then, by the way, there's, we're going to add some more wrinkles to this a little bit also. But they are very much set in that first century world. Jesus is telling stories that are familiar to the people. They get it. They understand. 
because he's relating to their own culture. He's relating to their own experiences. He mentions people, kings and um, shepherds um, and Pharisees and tax collectors and all these things. They get it, right? They get it because they understand the cultural context of them. All right, now, of course, the danger is that when we interpret the Bible is that we're so concerned with application that we skip those things. What does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? You know, right? And we encourage the private you know, Bible devotions, which are all good, but why do you read the Bible for your private devotions? Because I want to know what this means to me. And when you do that, you might immediately forget that ancient context, that ancient culture, uh, and the ancient background. In fact... Uh, let's look, I'm going to skip down to letter C for a second, down at the bottom here, Luke 18. And let's look at that parable here for a moment. Luke 18, 9, one that you're all familiar with. Well, you're not necessarily all familiar with, but many of you are. 18, 9. Uh, New American Standard, uh, 18, 9 through 14, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Uh, he told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax gatherer. All right, stop. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? The Pharisee's the good guy. But for most of us, when we read it, right, the Pharisee's the bad guy. But when you're a first century Jew, the Pharisees are the righteous people. They're the religious leaders. They're the ones you look up to for everything. You respect them. We look at them and th- what are our adjectives to describe Pharisees? Pharisaical. <laughs> Not sure that worked very well, but it, it got a laugh from the front row. All right, okay. All right. Um, what's that? Yeah, there you go. Whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, judgmental, arrogant, pompous. Sur- what's that? Surface. All right, yeah. They know everything. They're pretentious, right? Uh, they're boastful. They judge everybody. All right. But that's not what they would think. So you see how immediately we've misread the parable when we read with the wrong set of eyes. We know the the New Testament, most of us, right? So we know the Pharisee's the bad guy. But not when he's telling the parable. The Pharisee's the good guy. So flip it around. So they went to the temple to pray. What a Pharisee, the other tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Let's go back. The Pharisee stood, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people. Oh, yeah, because he's so righteous. Oh, man, wow, he's giving thanks to God because he's such a great person. I'm not a swindler, unjust, adulterer, or even like this tax gatherer. Oh, yeah, that scumbag tax gatherer, right? I mean, what do we know about tax gatherers, by the way, right? What's a first century Jewish perspective of them? Cheaters, what else? Greedy, liars, dishonest. I'm missing a very important adjective here. Traitor. They're traitors. They've, they're Israelites who work for Rome. They betray. They not only steal from us, they steal from us to give to Rome. They benefit from Roman occupation. We suffer from Roman occupation. 
This is as low as it gets. All right, now we'll think, right here we go. So I'm not like him. I fast twice a week. Wow. The Old Testament law only requires you to fast once a week, and he fasts twice a week. He pays tithes on all that he gets. The law does not require you to tithe on everything. You know, that, remember how, you know, as Christians, you know, do I pay a tithe on money my grandma gives me for my birthday? The Old Testament law would say no. You only tithe on income. You don't tithe on something that's already been tithed on. We should tell the U.S. government about that, by the way. You don't tax people money that's already been taxed on. Right? Yeah, yeah, here, here. But the, the Bible has that right. The U.S. government tax laws don't. Okay, here we go. So I pay tithes on all I get. See, he goes above and beyond the call of duty. But the tax gatherer is standing some distance away. Yeah, he's not even willing to go into the temple. He's so dirty and filthy, he can't even approach God. He beats his breast. Yeah, he better beat his breast. He won't even look up his eyes to heaven. He can't even look to God when he prays. You see, we think that's humility. They think that's derision. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified. You're like, what? You got it backwards, Jesus. You, you could, the people have got to be going, no, he didn't say that. He meant the Pharisee, right? You meant the Pharisee, right? No. The whole, everything about the parables is upside down. And it's this upside downness of the gospel that Jesus is teaching. And we miss that because of familiarity. Because we become so familiar with them, we actually miss the punchline. The, 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 uh, let's see. Uh, point number two. Parables often have uh, a punchline. They have an unexpected or surprised element. They project a familiar world and then introduce a radically familiar, uh, unfamiliar element. Right, and it's usually in the punchline in the end. This man went to his home justified. Like, no way! So now, the prodigal son, of course, you know, give me my share of the inheritance, which we talked about already, right? It's like, Dad, I wish you were dead. But then, where's the punchline in that? The, the, unfamiliar, the unexpected uh, end result of that parable. When the father runs to meet him. The son comes home. I know what I'll do. I'll say, Father, I've sinned against God and against you, and I'll, uh, and, and I'll come home and I'll be your servant. And, and here's that great moment of climax, and what happens? The father runs out to meet him. You're like, Oh, dude, you should not have done that. We think that's great, but they would have thought that's it bringing shame back into the home. You don't, you don't welcome shame back. So, but uh, nonetheless, they do. All right. Uh, mature men walk slowly within the... Yes, stop. Please. Wow, it's amazing. It, it, the, the, the radical cultures, yeah. So, uh, if you're listening on tape, you're referring to their, their work amongst Muslim communities, and what would they do if their son came back? They said they'd accept them, but if the daughter came back, they would slit her throat. Uh, yeah, in an Islamic society, generally speaking, right, Allah would never receive this kind of, well, Allah perhaps would re, uh, receive this type of person back, but honor and shame are big in Islam, even amongst, even with Allah, all right? The whole idea, uh, and, and, and this, just so you're aware, by the way, if you're ever witnessing to a Muslim, the, the notion that God became man is blasphemous, because it's humility, it's disgrace, it's shame. God's, he couldn't even think of becoming a man. All right, so that notion is just the incarnation. But when you begin to realize the story of it, and that is that God loved us so much he did this, I think if you wrap it in that and you, and you personalize it, what would you do for your own son? Would you do this? Yes. Oh, can you see a loving God who does this? And it brings about a great distinction between, it, between Christianity and Islam. And, and that is the nature of God. And so that helps. All right. 
Uh, Matthew 20 is the parable of, of the workers in the field. Some go to work at 6 in the morning. Some go to work at 9. Some go to work at noon. Some go to work at 5 p.m. They all get paid the same amount. It's like, what? They don't, they don't all deserve the same amount. Illustrating that. All right, so uh, here we go. Uh, there. All right, Matthew 13 and Mark 4. Let's go to Mark 4. Mark 4. Uh, I did a class on parables a year ago or so in which this was the preeminent parable. I think it is the preeminent parable, by the way. Mark 4, the parable of the, of the sower. And uh, I'm not going to pull everything up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles open to Mark 4, let me point out a couple things here. First thing to note is, and this is not clear in English as it is in Greek, a little bit in English. Verse 3, it says, listen to this. Uh, New American Standard, anyways. Uh, the end of verse 9, uh, or verse 9. He was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In the Greek text, the very first word of the parable and the very last word of the parable are the same word. Translated here as listen and hear. It's the same word in, in Greek. So that means the parable's framed with this hear, he, this idea of hearing. Um, of course, it ends with, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Right, now look, verse 14, uh, 15. These are the ones who beside the road when the, uh, where the word is sown. When they hear the word... Okay. Verse 16, when they hear the word. Verse 18, the ones who have, have, have heard the word. All right. And then verse 20, see each of the four soils, they all heard the word. The fourth soil is verse 20. Those in whom the seed sown on the good soil, when they hear the word. Ah, it begins and ends with hearing. The interpretation of the parable, each of the four soils, it's the stress on hearing the word. All right. Now let's go down to verse 24. I'm not, I'm not bringing it up on the screen here, but verse 24, if you have your Bibles. He was saying to them, take care what you listen to. Verse 23, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. All of a sudden now, wait a second. What's going on here? What's going on? Well, what's going on is parables are apocalyptic. What do we mean by that? Well, the phrase, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Is found in each of the seven letters of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters to seven churches. Each one of those letters ends with, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. It's an apocalyptic catchphrase. And we'll talk about apocalypses here in a minute. Um, but apocalypses uh, generally are symbolic, highly figurative language. And the reality is, if you read the Gospels carefully, you're going to find out that no one understood the parables. The disciples are constantly going to Jesus saying, what does that one mean? What does that one mean? What does that one mean? And you'll see that in Mark 4, down in verse 33. With many such parables, Mark 4, verse 33, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. The disciples didn't understand the parables either. It wasn't until afterwards Jesus explained it to them. The point is, if you don't have ears to hear, you don't get to hear. If you do have ears to hear, come closer, I'll explain it to you. And so it's this way of this, of, I don't know, it's, the parables actually serve Jesus, where he could tell everybody what he's doing, and they wouldn't kill him for it because they didn't understand what he was saying. Right? By what authority do you have to do these things? 
Let me tell you a parable. And he tells, uh, in fact, if you want to skip uh, briefly, in Mark chapter 11, I might as well reference, I was going to reference Mark 12 anyway, so Mark 11. Jesus has just overthrown the money chambers, changes tables, wreaked havoc. He's predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. And the chief priest, verse 27, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, by what authority do you do these things? Now, Jesus goes on to say, well, uh, let me ask you a question. Was John's baptism from, from God or from heaven or from heaven or from men? They're like, well, we don't know what to say, because if we say from God, why don't we listen to him? If we say from man, the people will stone us because they like John the Baptist. So they didn't answer Jesus. So Jesus said, well, I'm not going to tell you what authority I do these things either. Verse 33. But then he goes on to tell him a parable. And the parable is his answer. By what authority do you do these things? Well, here's the deal. This guy plants a vineyard. And the parable is, here's my authority. He plants a vineyard. He sends a servant to go collect the, uh, to collect the, you know, the, the income. But the servants who work the vineyard, they beat that servant. And then he, he sends him another one. Then they beat that one. And what, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. By what authority do you do these things? I'm the son. That's my authority. I'm the son. So parables are the means by which Jesus could explain who he is and what he's doing without them killing him right away. Because they didn't get it. Now look at the end of the parable, by the way. It says, verse uh, 12, They were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the multitude. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. They didn't understand the parable. They understood that he was speaking against them. It's a very, very clever way for Jesus to go about his teaching. By the way, it serves a great purpose for us because parables are great stories that are easily memorizable, aren't they? If not memorizable, but rememberable. I mean, most of the parables, if I say, hey, tell us the parable of the prodigal son, we could probably, you know, we could probably say it, even if no one in this room ever sat down and tried to memorize the parable. We can remember almost all the details for it. So parables are highly memorable because they're stories. All right? They make great points. The point is highlighted, mostly upside down from what we tend to think, by understanding the first century culture and what's going on, right? but then also understand that Jesus is actually using these to illustrate the kingdom of God. Maybe not just the kingdom of God, but who he is and what the kingdom of God is like. The wheat, the wheat and the tares grow up together. That means there's, there's going to be evil and good inside the church, huh? And you can't just uproot it all. Uh, because it'll uproot uh, uh, the wheat, the, the tares also. All right, very well. Any questions? Comments? Any remarks? No? We're okay with that? I said in that parable class, by the way, that Mark 4 is central to understanding the New Testament. I think if you understand that parable, Mark 4, you'll understand the New Testament. It really is, all right, uh, the nature of that. And if you want me to unpack that later, we can try to do so. All right, epistles. Epistles, uh, a.k.a. letters. It's a formal designation, but uh, I don't know that we're going to bother making any distinction between epistles and letters. How's that? So we'll just call them letters. Remember the, the, the way the New Testament's broken up. You've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're in the order that the early church thought they were written in. I think almost everyone today c- concludes that Mark was written first. We don't know if Matthew or Luke was second or third, one or the other, and then John was, was most likely indeed written last. So that one they definitely got right. 
but probably put Mark first, and you can go Mark, Matthew, Luke, or Mark, Luke, Matthew, either way. Uh, John. All right, then you have Acts, because Acts clearly is, as a historical book bridges the Gospels to the letters. Um, some of the letters of Paul were written. The setting for that is actually in the book of Acts. Not all of it, but some of, but some of them. Then you have the book of Revelation. Letters are broken up in the New Testament. First off, there's Paul's letters, and then there's everybody else's letters. Uh, we call Paul's letters, obviously, the Pauline letters, and everybody else's, we call them the general letters. Um, and that's because they were written to a general audience. James was written to, if you read James 1.1, 1, 1, kind of everybody. First uh, Peter, kind of written to everybody. Right. So they're, they're kind of general letters. Now, Third John is specifically to a, my, my dear friend Gaius. Second right. um, John is to, an, uh, to, a, to the elderly lady, which we think is a church, not, not a particular woman. So those are actually written to particular people, but again, it's kind of grouped with the general letters because they're written to a general audience. All right, Paul's letters, then there's 13 of them, and then there's that book of Hebrews, right? We don't know what to do with Hebrews, so we kind of attached it to Paul's. It's not a general letter, but it's not Paul's, but we, right, we don't know what to do with it. All right, Paul's letters are broken up first by letters to churches and then by letters to individuals, right? So you've got Romans all the way through Thessalonians. Then you have Timothy all the way through uh, Philemon. Romans to uh, Thessalonians are written are, are in the order of size. Romans is bigger than 1 Corinthians. Uh, uh, Gal- Technically, by the way, Ephesians is a couple words bigger than Galatians, so they kind of have that one out of order, but it doesn't matter. All right, but by size. And then the letters to, to persons, uh, Timothy, Titus, uh, they're also by size. But if, and it's always, by the way, the one and twos are always going to go together, right? The two Thessalonians are going to go next to each other. The two Timothys are going to go next to each other, etc. All right. And then James through Jude are also by size. With, of course, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John put together. Even though John, 3rd John's as small. Actually, 2nd John's technically, no. Like, less verses, but more words, something like that. So that's the letters. Okay, here we go. Uh, now, specific passages in the letter must be read in light of the entire letter. Um, oftentimes, you'll, you'll see an overarching theme. I think in 1 Corinthians, it's been the theme of... It's been the theme of unity. Yeah, no divisions in the church, unity in the church. So we, And we see this continuing to, to, to pervade through the letter. All right? Sometimes the theme doesn't last the whole letter. Sometimes it does. But when we often talk about how to interpret the Bible, we say, well, we have to read that verse and all the words around it, and, and we'll do word studies, which I say don't do them, but I'll talk about that next week. Um, danger, danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger. All right. um, the older people in the crowd know what that was a reference to. Right? Yeah, right? Yeah. Danger, Will Robinson. All right, good. Um, the younger kids are like, huh? All right. Cartoon Network, people. They got a TV channel for you. You can, all right, you can find out. All right, here we go. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was good, Tom. That was, that was really good, Tom. <laughs> all right. He says, what's he talking about, Brad? All right. Uh, is he older than you? No, he's not. He's a couple of years. He's a little younger. He's a little younger. All right. Um, a little younger. Come on, Tom. Oh, here you go. We'll talk about that Friday night in our Bible study. We'll have this out here. Bring, bring your driver's license, birth certificates. Here we go. Totally forgot where I'm at now. Uh, the, the verse in light of the words around it. All right. And then in light of the paragraph. And then in light of the chapter. And then in light of the whole book. And my first thought is start with the whole book. You really got to have a feel of the whole book. 
Uh, that's why, for example, by the way, I could never be a topical preacher. I could never do it. Because if I'm preaching this week on a sermon about this, and it's out of 1 Corinthians 13 or whatever, right, and on love, then the next week I'm talking about forgiveness, and it's Matthew 18. Well, to know 1 Corinthians 13, I have to know the whole book. And to know Matthew 18, I have to know the whole book. Well, that's too much prep time, people. So, if I'm going to preach a sermon out of Matthew, I'll spend a couple months getting ready for the whole Gospel of Matthew, and then, I'll get, then I can do a sermon on the whole Gospel of Matthew. It's just the only way to do it, because you're more likely going to either do an injustice by taking it out of the larger context of the whole book, or you're going to miss a few things that would actually have strengthened the point that you were making. Or even, even if, you know, it's, oh, and this, I've been arguing this all here in Matthew 18, oh, and this fits with the whole thing that, about Matthew's Gospel. You can't make that argument unless you know Matthew's whole gospel. All right. So you do have to grow incrementally with, with working your way out. Now, by the way, I'm talking about from my perspective or from the perspective of a teacher. I'm not talking about you guys going off and doing your own Bible studies. You know, start with that micro and start with the verse, start with the larger context, but eventually graduate to the whole, yourself to the whole passage and the whole, and the whole book. All right. Secondly, the letters were written for a larger audience. Right, they were written for a larger audience. So even though, and let's look at the Second Timothy four passage. I don't know if did we show this one in this class. I remember showing it recently, but it must not have been in this class. All right, here we go. If you read Second Timothy, um, the entire letter is written to Timothy. I mean, it's just his grandmother and his mother are named by name. Second uh, Timothy three, you know, uh, all scriptures inspired. Right before that is continue in the things that you've learned from from infancy, Timothy. Everything in this letter is written to Timothy as an individual, including the chapter 4. Make every effort to come to me quickly. It's Timothy. Oh, and bring my jacket and the parchments. Everything in this letter is written to Timothy as an individual. All right, here we go. The end of the, end of the book. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And without showing you, here's the deal. In Greek, the word you and your spirit is singular. He's speaking to Timothy. The Lord be with your spirit. The word you, the last word in the Greek text and in the English text, is plural. Grace be with you, plural. Somebody else is looking in on this letter and Paul knows it. And Paul's saying, grace be with you, plural, in an incredibly personal letter that's, it's just, it's, it's like, whoa, I mean, it's, if you're reading this letter in the Greek, you're like, you're like whoa, it's a double check. Because it's the first time you've seen the word you in the plural or anything being addressed in the plural in this entire letter. So, all right, so Paul knows people are looking in, all right, uh, as well. And I suspect from that, this is one of the reasons why I think, that Paul knew when he was writing inspired scripture. I, I think he just knew when he was writing scripture. First, the real first Corinthians is lost. If you're in the first Corinthians class, we talked about that. I think Paul knew that was not inspired this one is, that one's not, this one is. Grocery list, not, right? You know, note to self, not. All right, here we go. Uh, very well. All right, here we go. Number three. Uh, as with all biblical literature, the, the letters or the epistles reflect the customs and culture of their contemporary world. All right, so we've got to be familiar with that. You know, uh, Romans 1, uh, your faithfulness has been proclaimed throughout the whole world. Well, number one, that's an exaggeration. But number two, the whole world is what? The Roman world. That phrase in Greek references the, referenced the Roman Empire. So we've got to understand this, uh, understand what's going on here. Uh, we've talked in the Corinthians class about a woman having uh, short hair or having her head covered, men having long hair, 
women having braided hair. All these things are culturally relevant issues that we have to understand what that culture was like, what that, what that meant to them before we can even begin the process of determining how to apply it to ourselves. Right, and we're going to have fun with the First Corinthians 14 tonight uh, in the next class. <laughs> I'm going to have fun with it. It's up to you whether you have fun or not. All right, here we go. Um, tell, you got any questions, comments? I'm like looking at my watch, which I don't wear because we know, like, I haven't worn a watch in like two years now. Whatever. So here we go. But, oh, it's, it's getting late. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Uh, these letters were written for a specific audience and to a specific situation. We must determine the meaning uh, in the context of the historical occasion in which it arose before determining its present application. Good exegesis. Uh, exegesis means to take out of the text. It's, it, how about, maybe instead of exegesis, write the word interpretation. You know, good interpretation means we must determine the setting and background of its recipients before you can apply it to today. And we've seen this in our First Corinthians class, for those of you that are in that class, because there's a big problem with that letter, and that is, we don't know the background in some of those passages. We just, in my opinion, we don't know what he's getting at. I'll give you a better example, this will be in the Thessalonians class. Second Thessalonians 2. Second Thessalonians 2. Many books on the end times are written on this chapter, and let's prove them all wrong right now. I think this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. One of the most. There's about three or four that I label. And, and, and it's not central, by the way. You're like, well, if, if you know, the Bible's so that hard to... No, it's not always this difficult to understand. But here we go. Verse 1, We request you, brothers, regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. All right, so someone wrote a false letter or gave a false report saying, oh, love Paul. And what did the letter say? That the day of the Lord has come. And Paul's like, we didn't write that. That's not from us. All right, so verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. We're like, what's that? The man of lawlessness is revealed. Who's that? Uh, and the son of he's the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself over every so-called God or object of worship. He takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And now you know what restrains him. Uh, no, Paul, I don't remember when you told us these things. And no, Paul, I don't know what now restrains him. Right? We don't know. Um, you can read all the end times books you want, but they don't know either. All right. um, there's actually significant problems in the Greek of this particular passage as well, uh, because Paul flip-flops around, and it's very, very, very difficult. We'll, we'll actually go through it a little bit more, obviously a little bit more thoroughly, uh, more thoroughly in our Thessalonians class, and kind of look at it. I'll kind of give you all the options and say, hey, here's the basic options uh, that are going on. But this is the problem. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And the answer is no. I don't remember, Paul, what you were telling us because we weren't with you. But because the answer to that question for them was yes, Paul doesn't clarify. He doesn't have to expound or, or expand on things because they already, already remember. And you know what restrains him. And we're like, uh, we don't even know what the man of lawlessness is, let alone what's restraining him. Right? And we could, oh, it's the Antichrist. Well, we could work on that, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, um, there. All right. By the way, the temple of God is the church. 
oh, whoops, we'll have to talk about that in uh, our next class. So, make sense? Yes? All right, let's move forward here. Top of page 20. You guys all tracking okay? Uh, we must determine the circumstances in which the letter arose. Its ancient context is never going to correspond precisely to the modern one. We must determine the principle that the author is proposing and then determine how that translates into a modern context. 1 Timothy 2, we'll look at this as an example uh, of, this, of that last point. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I'm not going to go into all the details of this passage here, but we can do so another time. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I want men in every place uh, to pray, lifting up holy hands. Most of us don't do that. What? Why? Well, because lifting up holy hands is what they did when they prayed. It doesn't mean that we have to do it. It was just that was their culture. And Paul says, okay, here's what I do. Here's what I want. When you lift up your hands, I want them to be holy. The point isn't the lifting up of the hands. It's that they're holy hands. So, right? That's major difference now. Uh, and we can literalize this and argue about whether you pray with your hands, with your hands up in the air or not and, and totally miss the meaning of the, of the verse, can't we? All right. Uh, without wrath and dissension. I want women to dress, to adorn themselves with proper clothing. But isn't proper clothing somewhat cultural? It's not totally cultural, by the way. Uh, it is somewhat cultural. All right, so here we go. Modestly and discreetly. Look what Paul says. Not with braided hair. For some reason, braided hair was not fitting the criteria of proper clothing, i.e. being modest and discreet. Not with gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befit women making a claim to godliness. So the, the culture of the day says braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly garments do not constitute proper clothing of modesty and discreetly. What we have to do now is figure, okay, I get the point. It's proper clothing. Proper clothing is defined as modesty and discreetly. And now let's start defining and describing what modesty and discreetly means in our culture, in our generation, in our day. So, make sense? All right. And, of course, the next passage has even more problems, so we'll skip it. Yeah. Verse 5. Or point number 5. We must also determine if the prohibition is culturally dependent or theologically justified. And the next passage actually has this uh, um, in great detail, but I can't open up a can of worms and not, not answer it, so I won't go there. But here's what I mean by that. Does Paul give, uh, we're just using Paul because he wrote, writes most of the letters. When Paul says, don't do this or do do this, when Paul says that, is he giving a cultural justification for it? Or is he giving a theological justification for it? A cultural justification would be, this is what we do. But that doesn't mean that every culture does that or that every culture has to do that. It's just, this is proper in our culture. Or is Paul saying, because that's the way God made it? Now, even that answer is up for debate at times. Right? Even that answer is up, up for debate at times. For example, actually, I might as well look at it. Here we go. I'm not going to go into great detail. I wrote a, a paper on this. If you want to read it, it's on my website. Um, and I actually dealt with this particular path, this particular verse. Um, uh, a woman, verse 11, uh, 1 Timothy 2. A woman must be quiet, learn, receive quietly instruction and entire submissive. She cannot teach or have authority over a man. She must remain quiet. 
Here's the statement. Women can't teach or have authority over a man. Now, the question is, does Paul provide a theological justification? Something grounded in the way God made it and the way it's supposed to be. And if that's the case, that's just the way it is. Sorry, ladies, you're out of luck. All right. And if you don't like it, by the way, come to the First Corinthians class because you'll like that class. Or does Paul provide a cultural justification, meaning... This is something that we want you to do in our culture because it just wouldn't be deemed appropriate. For example, if you go into an Islamic culture and you try to open up a church, you probably don't want to let the women be be pastors. It's just not going to be culturally accepted, and it might be a a hindrance to the gospel. So women, even though I think you can probably teach and have authority in church, and not everyone here might agree with that, um, don't do that. In certain cultures, deny yourself that privilege in certain cultures for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel. Make sense? All right, now, here, here's, here's the example. All right, Paul gives two justifications. One is that, he, that Adam was not deceived, it was Eve. That's one of his justifications, okay? The reason why women can't teach her authority is because she was deceived, he wasn't. All right, the second justification is because Adam was made first. Adam was first created, verse 13, then Eve. Now, here's the question, that's this, with with both of those. And that is, are they absolutely abiding truths that remain unchanged? Now, the the second one seems to be pretty easy. Yes, Adam was deceived, uh, was not deceived first, Eve was. That's not changed. Or the first one, whatever, right? That doesn't change. That's just a fact on the ground. But the question is this, why was Eve deceived? And why are women... he seems to be suggesting that women are more easily deceived. And in light of the role of the pastor to be a shepherd with false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, women are more susceptible to being deceived, therefore they can't be pastors. Question, why are women more susceptible to deception? A, because women are just by nature more susceptible to deception. That's not true. All, all studies today have absolutely confirmed it has nothing to do with being male versus female. Factors that are significant for more likely to be, subse- be deceived include age. Children are more deceived than adults, right? You can pull the wool over a child's eyes a lot easier than an adult. All right. Economic status, off, often, right? Because it's, it's directly related to the next one, which is education. Right? There's like seven factors, right? Education. And when you look at those factors, what caused a woman to be more easily deceived? The only one that could have been true in Paul's day is is lack of education. So that may suggest, I'll leave this as a may, that if a woman has this similar access or equal access to education as a man, then maybe this provision doesn't apply. As long as she says, that, well, edu- the whole point is she's deceived. And if she has access to education, she's not easily deceived. We'll argue that one back and forth. All right, second, uh, second example now here is Adam was made first, Eve was made second. That's, that's like, that's not going to change. But the question becomes, is that an absolute requirement that bars Eve or all women forever? And here's the reality. It's called primogeniture, which is uh, uh, the firstborn, primogeniture, uh, the, the, the right of the firstborn. All right. Are there ever exceptions in Scripture where the firstborn isn't the privileged one? Many of them. In fact, it's generally the rule, isn't it? Because it's Isaac, right, and not uh, Jacob. Did I have that right? Isaac and not uh, Ishmael, 
Jacob, Jacob, not Ish. I have to say them, I have to say them together. I can't get them right. All right. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here you go. So Isaac, not Ishmael. Uh, Isaac's second. Jacob's second. Primogeniture. So, all right. Ephraim and Manasseh, by the way, in Genesis 49, is a great example of that. All right. In other words, it's a general truth. I know it's a, it's a general truth, but it can be violated. So Paul seems, perhaps, the argument would be, he's giving a cultural thing that in our culture, women are not going to be respected as teachers, and they're not as privileged to education, therefore don't let them teach. And he appeals to two things that may not be abiding eternally. And I think if you look at the general tenor of the New Testament, by the way, the New Testament's going in an opposite direction than this. I think we've taken it the wrong way than where the history of the church has even taken it uh, uh, also. But you can disagree with me on that one, so we're all good. All right? Questions, comments, and remarks. Did I illustrate that okay? There we go. Letter E, the problem is when these circumstances are not known today. All right? Uh, the book of Hebrews. Who wrote it? <laughs> okay. When did he write it? Uh, we don't know. Uh, to whom did he write it? Uh, we don't know. And you can see, or 1 Corinthians, right? We don't know. Or 2 Thessalonians. There, there are certain things that we don't know. And what that means then is we've got to be careful about forming doctrine around it. And by the way, none of these are doctrinal issues. The nature of Christ, salvation, the nature of God. We don't have those problems. So I'm, I'm not saying the Bible is difficult to interpret in all these cases. We're talking about applicational instances here or a practical issue there. And women in the church is not just a practical issue. It's a significant practical issue. And we're going to have some disputes on some of these things. But uh, sometimes it's not known. By the way, the book of Hebrews is fabulous. Uh, Paul's letters always follow a, a general format. And uh, uh, the format is, you know, which follows ancient, an ancient letter, by the way. And that's so-and-so to so-and-so. Right? Paul to the church in Colossae. Paul to Timothy, my dear son. Right? Uh, James to the churches, etc. Right. Uh, and then there's a greeting. Uh, uh, and the greeting is different in the, in the Christian literature than they are in secular literature. In the Christian literature, it's grace and peace. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Whereas in the ancient literature, it was greetings. All right? uh, and then there's what we call the body opening, uh, or the body of the letter. All right, now, the body of the letter always begins with a thanksgiving. The book of Romans. I thank my God, Jesus Christ, for you all. Common format of Paul's letters and ancient letters. What's extremely striking, though, is the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Okay, because Paul's letters follow this format. And they know the format. I used to write letters to my grandma. Dear Nana, how are you? I am fine. And I realized I used to write that way all the time. So when I was 24, I stopped doing that. Okay. Oops, wrong way. Galatians 1. All right, here we go. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, and all the brothers who are with me, verse 2, to to the churches of Galatia. Write Paul uh, to so-and-so. Verse uh, 3, grace to you and peace. There's that greeting. Verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. There's no thanksgiving. He doesn't thank God at all. It's Paul and so-and-so to so-and-so. Grace and peace. Oh, I can't believe you're deserting the gospel already. Right? And, and it's, it's, right? uh, it's not only another gospel. It's not a, another gospel. It's, it's, you know, it's, and it's anathema. Right? It's accursed. If you do this, you're cursed of God. I mean, this is a strong rebuke at the very, very front of the letter. So... This would have absolutely stood out and hit hard the recipients of the book of Galatians. So that's why it's kind of important to realize the way Paul writes these letters, etc. All right. 
And then, oh, I gave an example of uh, details not being known. There's the second last one. It's two paths that we already looked at. Okay? Okay. Uh, uh, capital H. Sometimes a doctrine is not taught because it was assumed by everybody. See, here's the, a very important thing. Point number one. Letters only address issues that were matters of dispute. Very important. The letters of the New Testament do not contain everything there is about Christian theology or Christian doctrine or Christian practices. It only contains things that Paul responds to the problems that they were having. He doesn't give this, I'll write a whole letter saying, you're doing this really well and this really well and this really well and this really well. It's, hey, I'm glad that you guys are worshiping and fellowshipping together, but here are the problems. Here's what you're not doing. Here's what you're not doing. All right. So that means it's not complete, and we've got to be careful about that. Ultimately, now, for example, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses will make this argument, and we love the people, we don't agree with what they teach, we'll treat them with gentleness and respect because they are sinners in need of a Savior. Just as I was a sinner in need of a Savior, and if it's not for the grace of God, there goes all of us. They'll often argue, oh, the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't invented until 325 BC. Right? That's, and we'll talk about this in our church history class. All right. Well, why did the church never come up with the doctrine of the Trinity until 325 BC? Because no one ever disputed it before then. It was so universally accepted, it was never rejected. There's no need to get a council together and say, guys, let's make sure we're all on the same page on this. When they're all on the same page on this. Why go through the time and the expense of convening a council to discuss something that we all agree on? So the councils were actually met when somebody finally got enough, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, someone finally disputed it. And, and got some support, then the church had, had councils to meet with these things. All right, so there's a lot of these things that, that it's just kind of assumed. All right, so as an example now, number four is infant baptism. What does the New Testament teach about baptism? I'd like to see you write a book on that. And there are books written on it, but I think it's going to be a hard book to write. Because whatever they were doing, they were all doing it. And you could read it as they were only baptizing adults, and it makes perfect sense. But you could read it as they were baptizing infants too, and it makes perfect sense. And the problem is, no one was doing something otherwise. And because of that, Paul doesn't respond and say, this is what we believe. And because Paul never says, this is what we, what we believe about who to baptize, it doesn't, it doesn't answer the question. And I think we got an interesting dispute on our hands uh, um, uh, there. So it's an interesting issue. All right. Abortion, by the way, which was practiced in the Roman world, is not addressed. Because the New Testament doesn't address the, is the ills of society. It addresses the ills within the church. All right, Tom, we've got to move forward now. I'm not sure how to say that. Okay, the, the statement was, would it be fair to say, if it's not addressed, it's not foundational? No, because if it's assumed that everybody agrees, even though it is foundational. The Trinity is foundational, but it's never explicitly taught by Paul. Very foundational. Because Paul just assumes it. That's why, you know, in the First Corinthians class, we talked about the Trinitarian formulas, God the Father, the Son Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God. It's just assumed that you know that and you get that. Most of us will actually kind of gloss over that and not realize the depth of theology that's in those three verses. Um, uh, so I, I think, I, I think baptism is pretty foundational myself. Um, but it's not explicitly taught which one it is. So, all right, give me 100 bucks and I still won't tell you. Just kidding. Uh, here we go. Very well. Any questions, comments, any remarks? Uh, are we good? Uh, let's take a two, three-minute break just to stretch ourselves, and then we'll, we'll, we'll do the entire book of Revelation in 20 minutes. Here we go. Apocalyptic literature. Page 
page 21. Sorry to keep it quick, but I want to kind of... We've been on schedule this whole quarter, or close enough, so... Apocalyptic, the book of um, Revelation begins with the word apocalypsis. That's where we get the word, the name apocalyptic from, actually, is the book of Revelation. So it's kind of a circular argument there. Um, but the first thing I want you to notice is that apocalyptic literature is not just the book of Revelation. Daniel has majority, chapter 7 through 12, or 7, yeah, 7 through 12, are all apocalyptic. Um, parts of Zechariah are apocalyptic. Parts of Isaiah are apocalyptic. Parts of the Gospels are apocalyptic. Not just the parables, by the way. There's a lot of apocalyptic literature or, or phraseology or expressions in the New Testament or in the Scriptures. So uh, be aware of that. It's not just the book of Revelation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, 2 and 3. I don't have time to flesh out all of this. We will do our study of Revelation again this summer. If you're interested, we'll... We're going to begin in chapter 13, but we'll begin actually by reviewing the first 12 chapters, and then we'll do chapters 13 through the end of the book. Uh, that'll be sometime in the month of July. And I hope to go to Brentwood again. We'll have to see if that makes sense. The revelation, and the word revelation here in the Greek is apocalypsis. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show, and that's one of the words I have down on your outline there, uh, his bond servants, the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it, and that's one of the words I think I have done in the outline, by his angel to his bondservant John. All right, now look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads the words of the prophecy and he the things which are written in it. So verse 3 calls the book a prophecy. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Verse 4 looks like a, a letter. It's a letter, isn't it? So-and-so to so-and-so, grace and peace. So the book of Revelation has three genres, all mixed together. All right? And it makes it kind of difficult at times then. So let's see if we can, we can flesh that out a little bit also. Right, looking at the outline, uh, I, I noted a couple of words in verse 1 of, of the book of Revelation. Um, the, word, uh, the word to show literally means to signify which literally means to make something clear, signify, or show, especially by means of a sign or a symbol. So it says, let's see, he sent, actually I have to look up the two words in Greek, I have to look at the Greek now to figure out which, words, which one's which. Yeah, okay. Uh, at, the, at the end of the verse it says, he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant. All right, that's the, that's the word here. Uh, he, he communicated, he, he made it clear by means of symbol is the Greek word there. Uh, so the, the book tells you I'm using symbols right? uh, and symbolic communication. All right, number, point number two, at the very beginning of verse one, it says that which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the word show refers to a symbolic communication or revelation communicated through angels. So verse one of Revelation 1.1, one, one, that makes sense? Has two words. Let me say it again then. At the very beginning of the verse, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show. That word to show is point number two. And it means to show as a symbolic communication through, by means of angels. Then the verse continues, to show the things that must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it. All right, the Net Bible says he made it clear. The NIV says he made it known. 
Uh, the New King James says he signified it. It's actually a pretty good translation right there, signified. All right, any other translations that I've missed? No, everybody got the word I'm talking about? All right, that word there is point number one. And point number one is to make something clear by means of symbol or by means of signs. Noun form of that word, it's a verb, to show, or, right? The noun form of that word is used in the Gospel of John as this is the first sign that Jesus did in Cana. In the Gospel of John, he never does miracles. He always does signs. It's the same word here, except here it's a verb, and John it's a, it's a noun. So the miracles of Jesus are, are called signs. Why? Because turning water into wine isn't just a miracle. It signifies that he's the God who creates all things. And he can take water and make wine out of it. Make sense? All right. So it tells us in the very first verse of the book that it's using symbolic communication. Okay, now let's, let's look at the nature of this. Okay, here we go. Um, Daniel uses it, so does John. Let's move forward a little bit as we go. Top of page 22. Let's see if I have any notes there. I'm going to skip over that. Um, okay. All right, let's go to Roman numeral 2 as an, as an epistle. As an epistle, here's the deal. Letter E. It addresses real people with real circumstances. As an epistle, it's addressed to real people at a real time with real issues. So it's just like Colossians. If you want to know about Colossians, what do you need to know about? Who was Paul? When did he write it? Who, what, what was Colossae like? What were the people like? What were their problems? What's Paul addressing? You want to know what the book of Revelation is about? You've got to know what? Who was John? When did he write it? To whom did he write it? The seven churches. Where are these churches at? What's going on with them? Because John's addressing them. The first mistake that's made, in my opinion, by those who apply the book of Revelation in the future immediately, is that they've taken it out of its immediate context. The book made sense to them. It had to mean, it's a letter, it had to mean something to them. You don't just take it and apply it to your contemporary world and assume, that, oh, well, they just didn't get it then. No, no, it's not going to work that way. All right, as an epistle, it had relevance to its original audience. And we've talked about this in our Revelation class, if you take that uh, in this summer or, or in the past, if you've already taken it, right? And that is, he wants them to overcome. He wants them to endure, to persevere, uh, to imitate Christ, um, etc., Right? And overcoming has a certain language we'll talk about in a minute. All right, uh, Roman number three is a prophecy now. Well, we talked about prophecy in this class, right? And prophecy, uh, what were the prophets concerned with? The people of their day. Telling the people of their day, you better obey God's word or this is what's going to happen to you. They weren't concerned with telling the future as much as they were about changing the conduct of the people to whom they were speaking. So also a prophecy wants to do the same thing. It calls itself a prophecy. The book, John claims to be a prophet. John's commissioned as a prophet in chapter 10, which we talked about in our, in our class, and we'll have to spend more time on that as well. So a prophecy also then means it's addressed to the people of that day. And John wants the people of that day to behave a certain way. He might want them to know something, but that knowing something is going to change their conduct in the present. And it may or may not be about the distant future, but it's knowing something so that they behave in a certain manner. Making sense so far? So both letter or epistle and prophecy means the book of Revelation had meaning to the people of the first century. He's trying to tell them something. Uh, and then as an apocalypse, 
Okay, actually, here we go. So Roman numeral four, uh, in my opinion, there are two keys to understanding the book of Revelation. Number one is the book's about Jesus. It says in verse, chapter one, verse one, in fact, the first three words in Greek, apocalypsis, Jesus Christu, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that can be translated two ways, or, or interpreted two ways, right? Revelation of Jesus Christ could be the one about Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. But it could also be the revelation from Jesus Christ, right? It's the revelation of Jesus means it's his. And it's just as unclear in Greek as it is in English. The only way to flush that out, is it the one that's from Jesus or the one that's about Jesus, is to read the book. And as we read the book, we conclude it's both. It's from Jesus, and it's about Jesus. So this, I think, is a major safeguard, in my opinion, for misinterpreting the book of Revelation. Because those who misinterpret Revelation today, the modern-day you know, prophetic pundits who write the books about the end times and how an alien's going to come and capture you know, the Russians and take them up into heaven and whatever they're going to say, oh, whatever they say, right? And the European economic community is going to do these things, and then now all that's going to happen. And The first mistake they make is they assume the book is about the present day. In other words, its primary meaning in their world is that it's about today. All right, now, the problem is this. Everyone has tried that for 2,000 years. And for 2,000 years, it's, they've been wrong, when the, except the first century. Um, when the people in the fifth century say it's about our day, they're wrong. When Martin Luther said it's about our day, they were wrong. Martin Luther said it was about the Pope. He was wrong. So this continues to happen. And why? Well, because they immediately assumed it was about the present day and not the first century world that John was writing to. And the fact that it's an epistle and that it's a prophecy immediately tells us that that's wrong. All right. So instead, it's about Jesus. All right. Second point. The symbolism is primarily derived from the Old Testament. And this was huge for me, because I grew up as one of these end times people with Hal Lindsey and all. It's about the European economic community, and it's about, you know, the Russians, and it's about the Chinese invading, and I, I grew up with all that, all right? Um, and for me, growing up that way, the, the visions in the book of Revelation was John describing the future. That, that's what I was taught. That's what Hal Lindsey says. John's seeing the future, and he doesn't know what nuclear war is, and he doesn't know what helicopters are, so he describes them in the way that they would have understood which they wouldn't have understood because it's a helicopter, but anyways, right? And they got human faces and they got hair, and, you know, and, and it makes sense, by the way. It, it, you, know, you could kind of make sense, you know, the, the, the sky rolls up as a mushroom cloud from nuclear warfare. All right, you can make it fit. You really can. But they've been making it fit for 2,000 years, by the way. So, that's, I mean, all right. But as soon as I began to realize, and you look at the scholarly literature, that the, the images actually go the other direction. They come from the Old Testament. The woman, the woman clothed with the sun is Joseph's dream in Genesis 39. The serpent is the Garden of Eden. Uh, that's the four beasts of Daniel 7. And you, oh, I get it. This makes sense. All right, so I, I gave you Revelation 13 here on your, on your outline. And if you have any, if you have a Bible that has, you know, the footnotes, the scripture references in the middle, middle column of your Bible on the side, just open up to Revelation 13 and look at all the times Daniel 7's in the column of your Bible in Revelation 13 then. It's all over it. All right? And I, I mean, I, if you don't have to look there, you can just look here because it's right here in the outline. Um, it, it's Daniel 7. It, it's just obvious it's Daniel 7. So the beast of Revelation 13 is not the European economic community. 
It's the four kingdoms of Daniel 7. And what I would say to you, let me see if this is the top. Okay, no. Uh, here we go. Uh, actually, it is. Uh, capital C on page 23. If you put chapters one, if you put points one and two together, capital C, point one is it's about Jesus. Point two is that the imagery comes from the Old Testament. Put them together. What's happening? John's reading the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. All the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. And when you get that, you go back and read them again. You're like, oh, I get it. But John con just continues the apocalyptic imagery and puts it in a first century clothing. So the beast of Revelation 13 is, is Nero. I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's Nero. But what is Nero? Nero is none other, none other than the four beasts of Daniel 7. A modern day application for John. And what do we realize that? Well, the four beasts of Daniel 7 do what? They persecute God's people. What does Nero do? He kills Peter and Paul and burns Christians on torches. We'll learn about this the first week of our, of our church history class. All right? Nero is just continuing what all pagan emperors do. And what do we find out about, the, about Nero in Revelation 13, or, or the beast in Revelation 13? He's empowered by the dragon. All right? Uh, let me show you here. Revelation 13. The dragon Satan. It tells us, if you're not familiar, that the dragon is, is the devil in chapter 12. Tell me if I'm going too quickly here, because we're doing all right in time. So the dragon is, is Satan. Look at verse 2. The beast which I saw was like a leopard. And if you look at the footnotes on the, on the outline, that's Daniel 7. His feet were like those of a bear. That's Daniel 7. Mouth like that of a lion. That's Daniel 7. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. It's the same thing the devil offered Jesus in the temptations. Worship me and all the kingdoms of the world are yours. The devil is the god of the kingdoms of the world. And the devil gives them to the beast to do what? To persecute God's people. Okay? And uh, uh, if you want to go forward here. Uh, the, the, the beast, verse 6, he opened his mouth to blaspheme God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. What does the beast do? He opposes God, because he's empowered by the dragon. But he doesn't make war against God, right? Verse uh, of 7. Here, there you go. He was, he was given to make war with the saints and to overcome them. He doesn't make war against God, he blasphemes God. How? By attacking us. That is, his name, that's us. I'm going to give you a new name. That's us. And his tabernacle, that's us. We are the temple of God. And in fact, the tabernacle is defined. Those who dwell in heaven, that's us. Oh, no, no, we don't dwell in heaven. Yeah, in the book of Revelation, one of the things it's going to do is it's going to have a good and bad. And the good dwell in heaven. The bad dwell on the earth. So when you read the book of Revelation, it says those who dwell on the earth, that's only the unrighteous or the unbelieving. Those who dwell in heaven, that's us. We don't literally dwell in heaven, but that's, make sense? It's how he, how he distinguishes between the good and the bad, So if, if you want to call it that way, or, or the followers of Jesus and the not followers of Jesus. All right, so what do we see? The dragon, uh, or the, the, the beast, blasphemes God by blaspheming his name and his tabernacle, which is us. Those who dwell in heaven, verse 7, he makes war with us. 
And that's Daniel 7. The four beasts in Daniel 7 make war with the saints. So this is this great, that makes sense, this great imagery. So it's, it's Jesus is the fulfillment of it, because what did the dragon do? Well, the first thing he made war with was Jesus. That's the cross. And what do we find out about the cross? The dragon lost at the cross because there was a resurrection. So Revelation says, when we die for the gospel, we too will live. We win the war against the dragon by dying. Now, I find this heavily ironic, by the way. Good time to throw this in. Here we go. Heavily ironic that for many of us, the war is out there, right? The end times, what's the end times going to look like? There's going to be war all over the world. And then there's going to be Armageddon. What's Armageddon going to be like? Oh, all the nations of the world, they're attacking Israel, and they're doing all these great things in the Middle East, and yada, 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 right? And yet, the book of Revelation says the war is against us, which the New Testament says also, which the Old Testament says also. The devil has got us deceived to look out there when the war is actually inside of us. The dragon's going to attack us. It's an amazing... Let's just say the devil's really good at what he does, namely deceiving deceiving. All right, so Revelation uses this heavy imagery. Um, the imagery is not difficult because it comes from the Old Testament. You see, when I used to think the Hal Lindsey kind of way, and again, I, you know, I'm not saying this person's not a Christian or anything like that at all. All right. But when I used to think that way, I used to think, oh, if you say it's symbolic imagery, who's to say what the symbolism means? That was a great argument. Because symbolism means open for interpretation. And anybody can say whatever they want. And, of course, the good conservative Christian, it means, that means it's open game for the liberals. The liberals can do whatever they want with it, and we always have to guard against the liberals. Okay. But I realize the symbolism is not open for interpretation. It comes from the Old Testament. It's pretty simple. It's, pretty, you know, it's not always easy. Sometimes we don't know, but for the most part, it's pretty straightforward. All right. And then Revelation draws these, the, this great warfare imagery of the devil waging war against God's people. And we win by dying. We win by dying. All right, any questions, comments? Yes. Ah, good question. Here we go. Numbers in the book in, in, in apocalyptic literature. I'm going to make an absolute statement that I think is absolutely true. That's why I'm making it. In case you're wondering. Numbers in apocalyptic literature are always symbolic as their primary meaning. And I can say that because I've never found in apocalyptic literature ever where a number didn't have its primary meaning as as symbolic. Now, it may or may not have a secondary meaning that's also literal. For example, there are seven churches in in chapters 2 and 3. Seven is symbolic of the totality of Christianity. It literally means there are seven churches in Revelation also. It's both. But the primary meaning is the literal, is the symbolic, and the secondary meaning is the literal. Sometimes there's no literal meaning at all. It's only a symbolic meaning. And we could discuss the 144,000 in chapter 7, if you'd like, for example. It's not a literal number. It's a symbolic number. Now, here's what we find about this. And I used to think, oh, you can't say that because, you know, if the number seven symbolic, what's it symbolic of? And it's open for the liberals to say it's symbolic of this, right? We have to safeguard against the liberals. Um, seven represents God. 
It represents totality, perfection. He created the world in seven days. It's pretty easy to see completion, perfection, or God in the number seven. The number 12 represents the people of God. Twelve tribes in the Old Testament, twelve apostles in the New Testament. Ten, completion in regards to the law. Ten commandments. Two, the number of witness. Without the testimony of two or three witness, no testimony can be determined to be credible. Four, represents completion in regards to creation. Four directions, four corners of the earth, four seasons. So you begin to, okay, this is pretty solid. And Revelation follows that. When you see creation in the book of Revelation, you're going to see fourfold. It's just always fourfold. When you see uh, God's people, it's twelve. So God's people in the Old Testament is twelve. God's people in the New Testament is twelve. Multiply them together and you get 144. That's, that's the symbolic meaning of the number, isn't it? It's clear. How do you get 144,000? All right, well, one more, one more note. The number 10,000 in Greek is almost always plural. I know it's, it's the word 10,000s, plural. It's like us saying millions and millions. How many stars are there? Oh, billions and billions. All right, we're not actually giving you an actual count of the number of stars. We're just simply saying it's like beyond our ability to count. They would use the word 10,000s for that. So the number of angels that worship before God is myriads of myriads, or Daniel 7, thousands upon thousands and 10,000s times 10,000s attended, attended the Lord of angels. That's just like, I'm not counting them. So in Greek, the highest countable number is 1,000. Because 10,000 is like an infinite. So 144 times 1,000 is 144,000. What does that mean? That means it's countable. It's a really large but countable number made up of Old Testament and New Testament saints. That's all it is. If you read chapter 7, we'll have to look at this more detail later, but 144,000 in Revelation 7 is verses 3 through 8. Verses 9 through 17 in Revelation Revelation 7 is, and then I saw a great multitude which no one could count. From every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. You've got a countable number of Israelites from the 12 tribes, and they're not the 12 tribes. All right, that's the first problem. 144,000 of them, countable number, from, of Israelites. They have an uncountable multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. What did God tell Abraham? From your seed... I will bless all the nations of the earth, and your descendants will be uncountable. From 144,000 Israelites, the fulfillment, but countable, God gave birth to an uncountable multitude from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. And there's more to it to support my argument than that as well uh, uh, there, but the numbers are symbolic. So the question that you asked, the number seven, it's a symbolic number, number one. Uh, the number seven, symbolic of perfection or completion or totality. Secondly, in the New Testament, you never find seven. There's not seven years in the New Testament. There's, you're, you'll never find a seven-year tribulation in the New Testament because seven's never there. It's always three and a half in the book of Revelation. It's always three and a half. It's never seven. Uh, because three and a half symbolizes the period of time during which God's people suffer. It's a common, uh, uh, it's actually a Jewish interpretation it comes from the book of Daniel, but three and a half is, during, is a time during which the people of God suffer. So the idea of a seven-year tribulation is not in the New Testament. 
It's actually a certain reading of Daniel. I think you have to force in the book of Daniel. Uh, and we can look at that later. Um, in the New Testament, you have three and a half. And it represents the period of time during which the people of God suffer. Guess what? The New Testament says that we suffer from the time of the cross until the time of the second coming of Christ. I think three and a half is symbolic of from the death of Jesus or his, second, or his resurrection or Pentecost until the second coming of Christ. It's the entire span of history. Why? Because it's not describing the last three and a half years of history. It's describing John's church at his time. And it's describing us. Does that make sense a little bit? I went over that last one quickly, but I had to. Time's out. Yes. Yeah, the, the question is, what happens to the dead? We, we, gotta, we need to stop here if we can. But what happens to the dead between the time that they die and the judgment? Well, again, you, you do have difference of opinion amongst Christian theology, etc. I tend to, to, to espouse the idea that the righteous go on to heaven, uh, the wicked go on to hell, awaiting the judgment day. Heaven's not eternal, right? The New Jerusalem's eternal. Right? It's where we go if we die now, between now, uh, between the resurrection, because before the resurrection it was paradise, from the resurrection to the second coming it's heaven. But I don't think we have a clear, absolute teaching on all that either. I think we have to be careful. It's another one of those things that, that, that's not clearly taught in the Testament. So, Nicole, did you, did you want to ask a question at all? Ah, Forty is a common number for uh, a generation. So the, the people of Israel lived 40 years in the wilderness because that generation had to die off before the next generation entered in. Um, so you do see 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Uh, it's judgment upon a generation. Uh, so Noah's generation was being judged in the flood, with the flood. By the way, the waters continued to increase for like almost the whole year, by the way. Or 150-something days, I think they increased more. Things like that. Uh, and so Jesus' 40 days symbolizes, that's symbolic of the 40 years is all it is. So, uh, in the wilderness. But again, Jesus being in the wilderness for 40 days is not necessarily an apocalyptic genre. It's historical too, but it also has that symbolism also. It's kind of a both. So, all right? Yeah. How about number eight? Number eight has no significance in Scripture, I would suggest. As a symbolic, not in apocalyptic literature. So, and I have a sheet on, on symbolic numbers in the book of Revelation that I could try to post on the website. Um, by the way, the number, the word dragon and beast, those words occur six and eight times in the book of Revelation, uh, but never seven. Specific titles for Jesus or God always occur seven or 14 or 28. Uh, uh, John, the, the whole book is a masterpiece because he actually counted how many times he used that word. So he only used it a certain number of times. All right, we're over. Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace. Uh, we thank you for your word, and I just pray that we've done justice tonight uh, to the word. Um, knowing that uh, through the Spirit of God, we can gain wisdom and understanding. But at the same time, we need to be diligent and faithful. We thank you for the fact that Christ has accomplished all things and fulfilled um, that which was required. And now we are called to, to overcome, to be faithful even to the point of death in humility, knowing that we too will rise again and defeat death. We thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy. We ask your blessings upon our time now. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, so next week we're going to talk about some practical tools. Oh, one other thing, that is this. Any questions you have about biblical interpretation, like what do I do with this, the number there? What do I, how do I interpret this passage? Let's bring them out. I won't answer them all, but we'll talk about, well, this is how we go about answering them, right? And we'll look at tools and resources, and I'll show you some, some interesting uh, things to do that I think enhance even your own Bible study. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, 
You can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time. Thank you.